Welcome to Sliceonomics. I'm your host, Kyla Scanlon. Sliceonomics is a podcast that is focused on exploring the complexity between economics, media, and culture with a human-focused lens. Sliceonomics is in co-production with Public.com, an investing platform that allows you to invest in crypto, ETFs, collectibles, art, and more, all in one place. Scan the QR code right here on the screen or click the link in the episode description box to learn more. For today's episode, we sat down with Tracy Alloway, the co-host of the Bloomberg Oddlets podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. We talked about the bond market, we talked about the changing face of media, and how if we think things are changing, they're really not. Tracy was previously the U.S. financial correspondent for the Financial Times, where she talked about bond markets at a time where nobody was really that interested in them, as well as a reporter for FT Alphaville. Tracy has a lot of experience in media and has been around media since 2008, so has seen how things have changed over the years. She's also seen how the bond market has changed over the years, and we get into how things have stayed the same over time, despite things seeming so different. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you like it, go ahead and hit the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hey, Tracy. Hi, Kyla. Thanks so much for joining me. It's so good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your media journey, talk about odd lots, and talk about bonds and more. But I do want to- All my favorite topics. Yeah. And financial crises, right? Mm. And your corgi. And I think kittens is the other one. I used to have a cat. He oh. died many years ago. I still miss him. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up, Kyla. No. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a good, these are all good topics that I am very happy to discuss. Okay, perfect. So I do want to begin with the media journey. So you started at the Financial Times, now at Bloomberg. Can you talk about that path and then also how the news itself has evolved as you've evolved? Sure. Um, so I started doing financial journalism in basically September 2008, which was a really interesting time to start doing it because uh, I, I joined the Financial Times Alphaville blog, which is now a big recognizable name, but at that time it was kind of the underdog of financial media. It was just a handful of people. We were doing this weird thing called blogging on the internet, which no one at the FT actually understood at that time. They thought we were all a bunch of, you know, weird young kids straight out of university and they didn't really understand what we were doing. But it was actually a great moment to start doing it, both from a media perspective and a topic perspective, because you had the financial crisis really kicking off. No one knew exactly what was happening. Even if you were a banking correspondent who had been covering the industry for literally decades, this was all brand new stuff. So it was great for me because I started from basically an even footing with a lot of financial journalist veterans. But from a media perspective, it was also great because everything was happening so fast yeah. that a lot of the traditional media just couldn't keep up. You know, you would put out the newspaper in the morning and then by like 4 p.m., the world had literally changed. You can't get another newspaper out until the next day. Whereas on the blogging side, on the digital media side, we were able to cover all those really fast breaking events. And of course, you know, if you fast forward, this was 2008, so more than two decades, the traditional media has really caught up with the digital side. And I would say newspapers have moved much closer to the blogging yeah. side than, you know, bloggers have moved towards the financial media side. So it's been a massive evolution. Yeah. And have, what have you noticed about how people cover the news since like, you know, you said your boss was like, what are you all doing? But now everybody's really receptive to digital media. Like what, what do you think that shift was just media becoming more popular? 
I think it was an acknowledgement that the world was kind of moving so fast that media had to move with it. That was definitely part of it. But then I think we saw that a lot of readers crave detail. They crave voice. They Mm -hmm. crave nuance. And, you know, that sort of basic newswire style of reporting, um, or if you think about a classic front page of the newspaper, it's like, you know, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's kind of going out of style. Like people very much want the voice of the reporter. They want Mm -hmm. the analysis. They want the context. They want the journalists to provide their expertise and sort of infuse it into the story. And so I think that's been a massive shift as well. And I think we have seen news kind of get voicier, get more analytical, give people the space to get into complex topics and give them some depth and some nuance. Yeah. And you have this incredible podcast with Joe Weisenthal called Odd Lots. Can you talk about the beginning of that and how you all have chosen to cover all sorts of different topics within there? Sure. Uh, So this was an interesting uh, media journey in and of itself. We started Odd Lots in 2015. And it was kind of funny because podcasts had obviously been around before then, but they were still yet to become this massive thing where you would joke that like, all of your friends have a podcast, your neighbor is starting their own podcast. They weren't ubiquitous yet. And so when Joe and I said we wanted to start this thing, no one said no, because the space hadn't been filled yet. Um, Our head of TV at the time basically said, I don't really understand why you guys are doing this or what a podcast is, but here's a radio booth that you can use to record once a week. And so we started doing that. Both Joe and I had other day jobs at the time, Mm -hmm. um, quite senior positions within Bloomberg. And so we were just doing odd lots for fun. And we thought we just want a venue where we can kind of dig into the things that we find most interesting and do it in a way that isn't a five minute soundbite on TV where you ask, you know, four or five questions and you get four or five straightforward answers, and then everyone goes away and they're like, oh yes, now I understand this. We wanted to do something that was much more in depth. We started at 20 minutes, which looking back on it now is like nothing. Most of our episodes now run to like 40 minutes, Mm -hmm. 50 minutes. But even that just opened up this whole new world to us, which was you can have a really intelligent conversation about something that maybe people think is obscure or exotic or not that important, but you can get them interested in it by talking about it in this really conversational way where you don't dumb it down, you don't simplify it, and you have time to go through all the interesting angles. Yeah. And do you do you feel like you've been able to achieve that? Like you talk about so many complex topics. Like how do you choose number one and then how do you make sure that it's not dumbed down? So the great thing about continuing to do odd lots. And we have been doing this for, it's really surprising to me, but I think it's like eight years now, um, is we built an audience along the way. And the audience has been fantastic because a lot of the episode ideas that that we get now are coming from the listeners or the readers, you know, Joe and I write as well. And they'll say, they'll find something and they'll be like, hey guys, this would make an awesome odd lots. Uh, Someone was doing that today. Actually, we've had several people doing this, but, you know, orange futures recently have been like spiking and then they've been very volatile. There's something going on with oranges. Do they have a disease again or? I think that's what it is. But again, everyone's going, we need not thoughts on this, which is great. And it kind of, it gives us the motivation to look into it. But beyond that, 
it's pretty much whatever catches um, Joe or, or my eye, you know, like whatever we find interesting at that moment in time. And the other thing I would say is I am so glad that we called it Odd Lots because it gives us this massive flexibility to cover, again, a wide variety of topics, anything that interests us at any one point in time. I, I worry, had we called it like the market or something, <laughs> we really would have restricted ourselves yeah. because we have been able to kind of move and evolve along with the news cycle. You know, during COVID, we covered a lot of real economy stories, a lot of things happening in transport and shipping with logistics because they were having such a big impact and because suddenly they were in everyone's lives, right? We were all talking about the cost of freight and yeah. things like that. So I, I'm glad we called it odd lots in the end and not, you know, market musings or something. Yeah. And what's been your favorite episode, if you can pick one? Man, um, that's really tough. Um, some of the live episodes that we've done, I find they're on my mind right now because Joe and I have basically just come off a like two month tour of travel where we went from, well, we went everywhere. We went like Austin, Las Vegas, yeah. LA, um, Jackson Hole. So we did a lot of live events this year. And I really enjoy doing those because you never really know what's going to happen. Um, and it's sort of a challenge to make the podcast super interesting in front of a live audience. Um, and I like developing that skill. But just on that topic, uh, one that springs readily to mind is we spoke with Bill Gross um, mm. at the Future Proof Conference um, in Huntington Beach. And... We thought we were just going to talk about the bond market, you know, a little bit about PIMCO, things like that. And suddenly out of the blue, he just went off on Jeff Gunlack <laughs> as his rival. And he was like, Jeff doesn't know how to manage bonds. Like, he's not a bond king. He couldn't even be the king. Or what was it? He was like, oh, he's not a bond king. In order to be a king, you have to have a country. Oh, my gosh. And, and laying into really... It was a surprise. I'll just put it that way. Sure. And I remember Joe and I were sort of sat on the couch in front of this live audience, just looking at each other going, well, this is interesting. Where do we take it from here? Um, and then I have to mention in terms of other uh, unexpected moments, uh, there is the infamous box episode with Sam Bankman. Oh, I, I don't know yeah. if you remember. Matt Levine. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So we, we had Matt Levine on talking to Sam Bankman Freed, um, the former head of FTX, uh, who has since been in all kinds of legal trouble. And Matt asked him a very simple question, which was, what is yield farming? Yeah. And Sam responded by using uh, an allegory of a box and saying, well, you take this magic box and someone puts money in it and then more people put money in it and money comes out the other side. And that's how yield farming works. And all of us in the room kind of held our collective breaths and we were like, wow, <laughs> you just described a Ponzi, <laughs> which Matt actually said at the time. Um, and it was pretty amazing because, again, no one was expecting him to say that. We thought he would come up with some insanely convoluted explanation for how this seemed to work. And instead, he kind of said the quiet part out loud, uh, which was surprising. Yeah. <laughs> he. It's been really interesting to watch his journey because I feel like he's just decimated the face of crypto, too. Even though, like, Bitcoin is on the rise again as of time of recording, but... 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of media narratives, we could talk a lot <laughs> about crypto. Yeah. I always get nervous about seeing the, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Sam Bankman Freed was sort of the golden child of crypto. He was the one that was supposed to be doing everything right. You know, he yeah. was talking to politicians. He was saying stuff like crypto should have regulations. We want to do everything by the book. Clearly in retrospect, it was all nonsense. Um, but going back to the price of Bitcoin, this is one reason why I always get really nervous whenever people are talking about like, oh, let's write a crypto obituary. Because mm -hmm. my experience is it has come back many times. And I remember um, I wrote something in 2017. At this point, I've probably written like five to six obituaries. So, um, you know, mea culpa on that. Mm -hmm. but I wrote, wrote something in 2017 when crypto prices had fallen through the floor. And then fast forward to like 2021, um, 2020, and they were just yeah. higher than ever. So it's extremely volatile. The way I think about it is you know, they're essentially lottery tickets. And I think it's very hard to stamp out people's collective interest in getting rich very quickly. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. I think we talked about it as basically like, how did you put it at the time? Like financial nihilism yeah. or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Which I think is, that's it, right? If people look around, they say, oh, the opportunities to get rich, there aren't that many. Right. The opportunities to get rich quickly are even less. So why not punt yeah. on some sort of SHIT coin? Yeah, take a gamble. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's sort of interesting because, like, some elements of the bond market have sort of moved like crypto. Um, and I was looking through your old posts on your blog, like, deep in your blog, and I was really struck by the similarities between what you were talking about in 2015, 2016 to now. It's been a massive change in interest. Um, it's kind of funny because I remember, you know, in, in the early 2010s, uh, when I, I was still at the Financial Times, but I would go to my editors and I would say something like, oh, I really think we should write a story about like treasury trading or um, I don't know, the lack of volatility in the treasury market or the fact that all these new rules for banks, the Basel rules, they all have to do with holding bonds, right? Is that actually a good assumption? If inflation ever picks up, I don't know. Maybe we should write about that. And you could see the editor's eyes kind of glaze over <laughs> and they would say something like, no, can you just write about Goldman bonuses instead? Um. I was like, all right, fine. Um, but of course, Fast forward to uh, 2023, and this is all anyone really wants to talk about. And I think a lot of those issues that were sort of rumblings just a decade or two ago have really come to the fore. Um, the big one being like we have had explosive growth in fixed income. Uh, so not only the government bond market, but also the corporate bond market. Uh, it has massively doubled in size. I should just say it's massively increased in size. And we've also had an explosion in more obscure types of credit. So you have private debt, um, yeah. which has boomed, even as interest rates have continued to go up. You have, uh, you know, a lot of interesting derivatives activity was kind of crushed in the aftermath of 2008 for obvious reasons. But you have more obscure derivatives like credit index options that have gotten very popular. So people basically using leveraged bets on credit as a whole, a sort of like overlay on their portfolios. So instead of saying like, I bet 
I want to buy protection against this particular company going bankrupt, they'll be like, I want to buy protection against this whole index of credit. And those have become really popular. And then the question is, has the infrastructure, the financial infrastructure for this market evolved enough along with its size? I think we've seen at various points that evidence that maybe it hasn't, you know, in 2020, when we had the um, the COVID market route, the big stress was in the treasury market, right? Sure. Which is supposed to be the most liquid, <laughs> safest, most boring part of the market. And it certainly wasn't in 2020. And then beyond that, I still question on the regulatory side. I remember writing a story um, in 2015, I think, you know, if you think about the securities regulator in the U.S., They have hundreds of people dedicated to looking at equities, at stocks, and seeing trouble in equities or fraud, um, that sort of thing. And in like 2015, I think they had one person who was looking at the bond market. Just one? It's like a $9 trillion market at that time. Or maybe $8 trillion. I can't remember. I can't keep track because it's growing so fast. It's now more than $10 trillion dedicating half their time to doing this. And so it's like, who is watching this really important market that is not just huge, it's also post-2008, basically the foundation of our financial system. You know, the solution to banks taking a lot of risk pre-08 was, well, we're going to make them hold these huge buffers of reliable capital, most of that's going to come in the form of government bonds or government guaranteed mortgage bonds. And it's all going to be fine because those bonds are, you know, again, they're always boring, they're always safe. And then again, in 2023, uh, come spring, we saw with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that actually uh, bonds can be very interesting. If you don't hedge correctly, then you can incur massive losses on seemingly safe holdings. And so I think there is still this tension between uh, between basically building the financial system on the basis of bonds and then the increase in volatility, the return of inflation that we've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, because people are fleeing into bonds to try and fight in, against inflation. And do you feel like that's still a move? Like, I, I don't, it's really hard to figure out what's happening in the bond market. We've seen treasuries freak out. Yeah, it's been um, it's been really weird for at least a year now. Yeah. So going into 2023, I remember the um, it was basically a binary future that everyone was talking about. It was either we're going to have recession or we're going to have a soft landing. And then fast forward to now, and it's not I don't think it's as binary, but there still is this massive uncertainty. And so you have seen the drawdowns of 2022 really continue into 2023. And I think that's shocking to a lot of people who haven't experienced losses. These are all paper losses mm-hmm. so far on their fixed income. But, you know, if if you have a portfolio, you know, if you have like one of those Vanguard target retirement funds or something, you would have seen a massive loss. It's a mark-to-market loss because the price of the bonds loses value as interest rates go up. You're still getting paid by the government. um, And, you know, the bonds are probably not going to default. They're probably going to mature. You'll get your money back. But in the meantime, if you 
do need to tap your retirement account um, for extra money. And again, a lot of people do because prices have gone up so much thanks to inflation. There's less there. Like you would crystallize your losses now. And so I think for a lot of people, it's just been shocking to see that big of a drawdown on their portfolios. Yeah. And one thing I think that has, or you've actually written about this, one thing that has helped to prevent a recession is companies issuing debt at pretty low rates, but a lot of that debt is coming due and they're going to have to issue at higher rates. Is that something that you're worried about? I feel um, obligated to talk about, uh, to refer to the looming maturity wall. Oh, the looming maturity wall. You have to say looming Looming. maturity wall. That's the rule. Um, No. uh, So there are a couple of things going on here. So first of all, from a financial media perspective, I remember probably myself included um, people writing about the maturity wall in like 2013. Oh, wow. It's it's been going on forever. It's always something that's off in the distance that is about to cause a lot of pain for, you know, companies that haven't managed their finances as well as they should have, perhaps. But of course, now in 2023, it definitely seems to be a more pressing issue And I do think an underappreciated aspect of why the U.S. economy has been, to some extent, surprisingly resilient, um, even as interest rates go up, is the fact that in 2020 and 2021, we saw this huge refinancing boom. So literally anyone who had access to market, which was pretty much everyone at that point, because everyone was still searching for yield, was able to go out and term out their debt. So basically borrow for longer at a lower cost. And so even in 2023, a lot of people are not that pressured to go out and raise money at these new interest rates. But that said, you know, loans don't last forever. At some point they mature and at some point people are going to have to go back out into the market. The big question to me is, you know, how big is that pressure going to be? Do we see a softening of the U.S. economy where the Fed maybe starts to reduce rates or at least start talking about it before all these companies have to refinance? And yeah. that seems that could be a possibility. You know, I think the, the majority of the looming maturity wall is like end of 2024 into 2025. So there's still some time. Yeah. Yeah. And like there's an election that happens in between that. And so who knows what the Federal Reserve, not that they're influenced by politics, but you know, a little bit. There's anything can happen. That's one thing I've learned. Yeah. And I think too, um, you know, mortgage rates are sky high because of the Federal Reserve hiking. And so do you, do you think like who's hurting more? Like, do you think it's companies or consumers or is it sort of both? Oh, um, that's a good question. I I think I would say consumers at this point. And I think it's definitely one of the reasons why when you look at the survey data, well, you've written about the vibe session. This (laughs) is why everyone seems miserable, even though a lot of the hard data suggests that um, they shouldn't be. And the other thing I would say on that, I I know there's a lot of um, sort of chin scratching nowadays about like, why don't Americans feel better about the economy? I think the answer is pretty simple, which is, okay, unemployment is super low. It's at a decade's low, but I don't think that matters for most people. You know, inflation is the thing that most people are going to experience. Like, unless you personally have lost your job, um, you're just not as affected by the overall unemployment rate um, as you are inflation. And so to me, yeah, you know, people in general are not 
good at looking at things on a collective basis. You could say, well, you know, we're all paying higher prices, but collectively we all have jobs. Isn't that great? I, I just don't think it, it resonates with the vast majority of people. And then companies, on the other hand, uh, you know, we've seen an increase in profits. There's a really interesting conversation, with, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast yeah. about whether or not all these unusual things that have happened um, in the world in recent years have basically given companies an excuse to raise their prices. Excuseflation, thank you. Um, So more than they would have to, to cover their input costs. And pricing is such an interesting topic to me. Um, It's hard to talk to companies about this because it's basically the secret sauce of how they make money. But we have had interesting conversations with, uh, for instance, we talked to a baker in Chicago, like a mid-sized bakery. And we asked him, when do you decide to put up your prices? And he basically said, well, if the price of eggs is in the news, if everyone's talking about avian flu and how expensive eggs are, then that's a good time for me to raise my prices because, you know, customers won't like it, but they'll understand it. They won't push back as much. And so I think it's an interesting question, the degree to which those micro decisions might be impacting the macro topic of inflation. So I read this on your blog, and I don't know if you'll remember, but um, it was one of your older posts. There was a president who actually did this whole marketing scheme around eggs, like branded them as high cholesterol (gasps) to push the prices down. Yes, this is my... um, I kind of, I have a soft spot for conspiracy theories, <laughs> although I also find them really annoying um, at various times, especially on certain social media of platforms. Mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes they turn out to be true. I don't know if you remember the Simpsons episode where like there's this guy, the egg council guy <laughs> suddenly shows up. Okay. I'm making um, an old reference that no. no one but me will know. Uh, but like this one was true. This was like a weird thing that happened and it turned out to be true. And what it was, was uh, there was inflation in the late 1960s. um, And I think it was Lyndon Johnson at the time, but I would have to go back and fact fact check myself. But um, they were basically talking about ways to bring down prices. And someone was like, why don't we talk about how much cholesterol (laughs) there is in eggs? And then no one will want to buy them. And so prices will come down. Genius. (laughs) Genius. <laughs> um, it was just so funny to me. And I think I think nowadays there is a collective acceptance that eggs are not as unhealthy for you as they were once perceived to be. Um, and the origins of that might be because of inflation in the 1960s. Oh my gosh. So it was all like a marketing scheme around the cholesterol to push prices down. We got to find the egg council and <laughs> ask them. That's wild. I do think that's interesting too, is like the narratives that can be woven and how that ends up impacting consumers. Cause like you were talking earlier about the vibe session. And I do think, you know, media headlines are a big part of that. It's like what people read ends up impacting how they feel, but then you're right. Like this real world data of everybody's hurting because of inflation is true too. Oh, totally. I completely agree with that. And the other interesting thing is, you know, you, you can look at, uh, we all focus on the national average of CPI, but you can look at it on a state by state basis. And there is, a big difference. You know, in Florida, I think it's running a lot hotter than it is um, Mm -hmm. per the national average and um, in a lot of the sort of uh, southeastern states as well. And this is kind of pushing the hypothesis a little bit far, but I have seen, you know, some respected analysts and economists make this line of thinking, particularly Paul Donovan at UBS, 
which is, you know, if, if this is a red state and they're listening to certain media outlets that are talking about how bad the economy is under Joe Biden, how there's inflation everywhere, going back to the excuseflation idea, it gives companies a better position from which to raise prices. They are not going to get that much consumer pushback because the consumers are watching every mm. day these media headlines going, oh, inflation is out of control. So they're not, maybe they're not going to be as shocked when they go to the grocery store and eggs are, you mm. know, egg prices have gone up 12%. Again, that's like, that's my own personal conspiracy theory. Uh, but I, I have seen like a few interesting tidbits that might support it. Yeah. And I think it's tough too, just like the concept of inflation, like people hear inflation is going down and they're like, oh, that means prices are going down. Yeah. And that's, sadly not. <laughs> I think that's just tough too. It's like the terminology can be really confusing. Totally. Well, you know, there were Walmart earnings um, yeah. just this morning and everyone's looking at that going, oh, Walmart's talking about deflation. And actually, if you go back um, to what they said two months ago, you know, they were talking about prices going down, but they made it very clear that prices are going down compared to last year. Mm. They are still very much higher than they were two or three years ago. So I, I think it's, yeah, another reason why people feel pretty bad at the moment, because we aren't seeing a return to those prices. We're not going to see a return to those prices unless there's a disaster with the U.S. economy. Do you feel like there's going to be an adoption to the new normal? I mean, I think human beings are endlessly adaptable. Certainly companies are endlessly adaptable in their pricing and sales strategies. Um, it does feel to me like I my base case is we glide lower in terms of benchmark interest rates, but that we have a lot more volatility than we used to. And mm -hmm. part of that is that idea of cascading one-off events. So, I mean... I can't even remember all the things that have happened just in the past three years, but we had a global pandemic. Um, we had Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, we now have the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, just all these emergencies and then layer on top of that more volatile weather patterns, um, supply chain issues, maybe a tendency towards deglobalization. So, you know, we're getting more spheres of influence in the global economy versus everyone kind of developing together. And it seems clear to me that like we are in for a more volatile era, whether or not that means permanently high levels of inflation and interest rates, I think remains to be seen, but going up and down a lot more <laughs> seems certain. And you've also been tweeting a little bit about the weather crises and like how I think it's El Nino's companies that mention El Nino. Yeah, their yeah that's right. So um, I, I find that climate change is sort of a challenging topic uh, from a media perspective, especially a financial media perspective, yeah. because it seems like it would be an obvious one um, for people to be interested in. But actually, it is kind of hard to get people to click on climate change headlines. I, I think a lot of people have just been sort of like worn out um, by a lot of the negativity. Spooky, yeah. yeah, it's sad and it's spooky and you feel completely helpless. So why would you read this? But on the other hand, I always viewed climate change as a it's a supply chain story. You know, things that were possible with a particular type of weather or climate are no longer going to be possible if we have these significant changes. And we've seen, you know, inklings of that. So we had the Mississippi River water drop in 2022 to the point where barges couldn't go up Remember, and down the river. Yeah. 
more recently with El Nino, we've had a drought, which has caused the Panama Canal to drop pretty low. Same thing there. Ships can't get through. That's going to add to, you know, shipping costs. Uh, it's going to make it harder to, to do um, movement of natural gas, things like that. And we have seen the impact of El Nino in some stocks. So I think there was a Morgan Stanley analysis where they basically said that companies which have m- mentioned El Nino in their earnings calls or have mentioned more volatile weather, some similar phrase, have seen their equities underperform by, I think it was up to 25 percentage points year to date. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, so that's not the average, that's like the extreme, but there has been some impact. And in fact, there's a really cool function on the Bloomberg terminal um, where you can look up filings and search for keywords. And so if you type El Nino in there, you can see like the sheer number of mentions has been going up as has words like volatile weather or supply chain disruptions, things like that. So the evidence that this is happening is definitely there. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's it's we talked about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, in, so this will be my final question, but I do want to like bring it back to the treasury market because number one, did they ever hire another regulator to look at the bond market? Do I you don't know? know. So this was the corporate bond market, just to be clear, okay, okay. not not treasuries. Not treasuries. Got um, it. But I, the answer is I have no idea. Okay. I should call up the SEC and ask yeah. them. And then number two, a lot of people are worried about the level of the national debt, but I do think a bigger conversation has to happen around like interest payments. And so as you're analyzing bonds and like looking at all this stuff, like you know, financial crises in hindsight, is the national debt something that you're looking at and concerned about? Yeah. I mean, I think there is a sort of feedback loop between inflation and higher interest rates, and then the government has to make higher interest rate payments. And then maybe there's an incentive to let inflation run a little bit because debt becomes cheaper in an inflationary environment, and then interest rates go up again, and then the government has to make higher payments, and then we're back to where we started. I do worry about that. Um, But when it comes to government debt, like it's a weird one because I can keep myself up at night going like, oh my God, we built the entire system on government bonds with the assumption that inflation is going to be low, volatility is going to be low in 2023. That's not the case. But the other thing I've learned from doing financial journalism for a long time is that the world tends to muddle through. Uh, So in 2020, um, when we had the treasury route, uh, we we had a big sell-off in corporate bonds too. The Fed announced all these new facilities and um, did a pretty good job in retrospect of calming the market. Um, I'm not going to say that it didn't add to long-term issues in fixed income. I've seen investors and traders in corporate bonds who are like, well, we're just going to buy whatever now because we know if things get bad enough, the Fed's going to buy these and the Fed's always going to be a backstop now. It's opened the floodgates, crossed the Rubicon of credit, however you want to put it. So there are big long-term questions, but in the short term, it feels like we muddle through. So I think I've said this before to Joe that I'm always sort of short-term positive and long-term negative. Yeah. Yeah, That's my, that's my life outlook. Things are okay in the short term, but over the long term, it's probably bad. Wow. I feel like it'd be the opposite. Yeah, I know. Okay. (laughs) Is it, why? 
Well, because I think we we're pretty good with coming up with short-term solutions that then come back with to haunt us. Problems, yeah. And so 2008 is kind of a perfect example of that, right? Like we had the big banking system collapse. Then we came up with new solutions around bank regulations. We said, we're going to make banks hold all these bonds and then it's going to be fine. And then 2023, we discover actually it's not fine. Banks have incurred massive losses on their bond portfolios to the point where they are now causing bank runs along with some other issues. And so I think the world is so complicated now. It's just hard to calibrate all these different things. And you can, you know, central banks are very good at coming up with individualized, tailored solutions for a specific problem. Um, and usually it's under emergency circumstances. You know, they do this when things are very, very bad. And so it's hard in that specific moment in time to calibrate what the con the long-term consequences actually are going to be. Yeah. And I think one thing that we've sort of seen with the Fed is like nobody really knows. Like, you know, we have these solutions, but nobody knows how they're actually going to play out. Oh, totally. And just going back into um, the recession discussion going into 2023, I mean, one of the reasons a lot of people thought we were going to get a recession was was because the yield curve mm -hmm. was inverted, which was supposed to be something that happens before recessions. And we can talk about when exactly the yield curve says a recession is supposed to happen. You know, people argue over the timeline. I think it's like 12 to 24 months, something like that. But there's also a pretty strong argument that maybe it's different this time. Maybe the economy has been so fundamentally changed by COVID that these old rules of the financial system just don't apply anymore. Or maybe because banks have to hold so many bonds nowadays, you can't look at the yield of debt and extricate information about economic uh, forecasts from it. Like oh. maybe people are just holding bonds because they have to, right? you know, in which case the yield curve wouldn't be as useful an informational signal as it, as it used to be. So that is one thing that makes this whole economic era so much trickier, so much harder to understand. And uh, it, it certainly generates um, lots of fodder for podcasts and financial news. So that's the one upside. Yeah. And this, this will actually be my last question because I'm just curious, you know, you cover so many topics on the podcast, you covered so many topics on the blog and in your writing. What's the most interesting thing that you're looking at right now? Right now? Oh my gosh. Um, I want to do more on corporate pricing strategies. Okay. Because it's just, we, Joe and I started to do it earlier this year. We had a, a few episodes with, I don't know if you know her, Isabella Weber. She's a German economist. She's she amazing. Wrote, did she write Seller's Price Inflation? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so um, excuseflation is basically a synonym for that. I've, I've seen people put it in like lots of different ways. I've also seen profit-led inflation. Yeah, and people keep on coining greedflation and yeah. associating with her, but it's not. No, it's not. It's not, it's yeah. not greedflation because the instance the instant you say greedflation, everyone's going to be like, oh, companies were always greedy. Nothing changed. To me, the thing that changed was you're in an environment where they have an excuse to raise prices yeah. and they can, and consumers can't push back as much anymore because everyone's doing it at the same time. All the companies are raising their prices at the same time. So there's not a lot of consumer choice. So I really want to dig deep into that issue. Cause I think not only is it sort of the essence of inflation and too often we're looking at inflation as 
a macro variable when in fact, you know, the actual prices we're paying are for goods and services. So it's really interesting to look at the decisions behind those prices. It's also a total black box because yeah. people at companies don't want to talk about it, right? No one wants to talk about like, we're jacking up our prices and this is how we're thinking about it. Or, you know, this is how we're thinking about wages, things like that. It's all really sensitive topics, but I would love to do more on that. Yeah. I think a lot of people would definitely want to tune in. I, it's something at the top of a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Tracy. This has been a really fun conversation. Oh, thank you, Kyla. I had so much fun. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>